the FTCA compliance report. The FTCA compliance report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, your one-stop shop for all things compliance service related. Today I have back with me my good friend and colleague, James Cucchio. James is a partner at Morrison Forrester, who uh, the law firm puts out a monthly top 10 international anti-corruption developments newsletter. And today we are visiting about <coughs> the firm's newsletter for March 2017. We have a very interesting discussion of the Lawrence Hoskins case, which uh, is in front of the Second Circuit, including a review of the oral arguments and the challenge to the Department of Justice's position on the jurisdictional reach of the FCPA. James and I really uh, go into the weeds on this one, uh, kind of geeking out from a legal perspective about the positions of the parties and how the court's ruling could significantly impact the jurisdictional reach of the FCPA. We then take a look at the recently released uh, OECD Working Group on Bribery uh, Phase 4 reports for the United Kingdom and Finland. Uh, James explains what these phases, 1, 2, 3, and now 4 are. Uh, I uh, question about some of the uh, issues raised, and James really goes into an explanation of what goes into these. We talk about um, the reports uh, in the United States and what the OECD really brings to international anti-corruption enforcement. It's a fascinating discussion. I'm sure you will enjoy it. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I am extraordinarily pleased to have back with me James Kukios, partner at Morrison & Forrester, to talk about the firm's March edition of the 10, Top 10 International Anti-Corruption Developments. Uh, James, uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, visit with me today. Thanks for having me again, Tom. Uh, James, once again, just a fabulous resource for the compliance community, the compliance practitioner, uh, law firms. Kudos to you and uh, your team for putting this together. Uh, and as always, there's some really interesting issues um, in the report. And finally, we get a law issue to geek out on. And I've been waiting to really want to go into this uh, with you because I think it's a, a fascinating case and gives us a lot of uh, uh, kind of meat to really uh, talk about. Uh, in light of the really lack of a lot of judicial rulings on the FCPA. So we've got uh, the Second Circuit Court heard oral arguments in March on a challenge to the Department of Justice's position on the jurisdictional reach of the FCPA. It involved Lawrence Hoskins, a former uh, Alstom executive. And so with that, I was wondering if you might be able to set, uh, set the stage of uh, where uh, what this appeal is on, and uh, then we can geek out. <laughs> sure. Sounds good, Tom. Always fun to, to be a geek. Uh, didn't think so in high school, but now it is. Yeah, it's cool now. So, <laughs> so very, very interesting and important um, opinion will be coming out of this oral argument. So as you mentioned, uh, Lawrence Hoskins was a former Alstom executive. He was actually a UK citizen, and he was based in Europe. Uh, and really did not, uh, at least for purposes of what he's charged with, have any um, physical contact with the United States. He didn't travel to the United States to take part in any of the activities that are charged. Uh, he was always in Europe or Asia for it. And the allegations essentially are, uh, if you go back to the Alstom case, that Alstom and Mary Bainey 
conspired to bribe Indonesian officials in order to win a very lucrative power plant construction project called the Terahan Project in Indonesia. And the allegations were that the bribes were paid through two middlemen, um, uh, two consultants, that Alstom and Marabeni would pay the consultants, and then the consultants would pass the money on to the Indonesian officials. And Hoskins is actually alleged to have been very, very involved in that decision. In fact, there's allegations about uh, him delivering the news to one of the um, consultants that, that the consultant wasn't bribing the right people, so they're going to bring in a second consultant to, to bribe uh, the right people. And, and uh, that all took place, though, in Indonesia, not in uh, the United States. So um, that's the allegation, whether it's true or not, of course, is, is for the jury to decide later. But uh, the, the allegations are really put him at the center of this bribery conspiracy. And by the way, Tom, I should mention, uh, one of the reasons it's important uh, in the FCPA violation, allegedly, is that one of the awesome subsidiaries that was going to be primarily involved in this power plant contract was based in Connecticut. Um, so the DOJ charged both Alstom um, and Marabini with with this conduct, and then uh, charged a series of awesome executives as well with this conduct, including Hoskins. And Hoskins challenged the jurisdiction of DOJ to reach him for FCPA violations on the grounds that uh, he did not fit within the categories of people uh, uh, enumerated, specifically enumerated in the FCPA. Uh, he Again, as I mentioned, he did not set foot in the United States as part of this conspiracy, so there's no 78DD3 jurisdiction. Uh, and he said that he was not an agent of the U.S. Um, uh, domestic concern, the Connecticut subsidiary, because he was above them in the hierarchy, and he could not, therefore, be considered their agent uh, 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 for purposes of that. And he said because he could not be uh, held liable as a primary person, then uh, he could not also be held liable under conspiracy or aiding and abetting under the 1932 United States Supreme Court ruling in Gabbardi versus United States. So I'll pause for a minute, uh, Tom, and let you be geeky now uh, if there's anything you want to talk about for Hoskins. Right. So the um, the first thing uh, I, I found, uh, I guess I shouldn't say troubling, because uh, if it's not available to be charged under the statute, it shouldn't be troubling, but is we have a uh, actor outside the United States engaging in conduct for a company that I believe has jurisdiction, the U.S. has jurisdiction over, claiming that individually you couldn't reach him. Uh, so that sort of troubles me as, on one point. But even if that is not troubling, um, then we now move to the uh, the second part, as I understand it, which is that if there can be no personal liability individually, then you cannot be charged with conspiracy. And right. that, that really... Um, takes away or would negate a large uh, swath of what the government can use to charge people. So uh, did I get that right, or am I a little bit off base? No, you did. And the the uh, the district court in Connecticut agreed with the defendant that he was not among the um, class of people who could be held primarily liable for an FCPA violation and therefore could not be held liable for conspiracy or aiding and abetting under this 1932 Supreme Court decision. And DOJ responded both with a legal argument but also a policy argument that is exactly what you found troubling, Tom, uh, because effectively what they argued uh, and what at least one of the Second Circuit judges during oral argument seemed to find pretty persuasive 
was what this means is companies can uh, simply set up a bribe desk overseas, make sure the people who are authorizing and working on the bribes uh, never set foot in the United States, and then they can just uh, organize bribes for everybody company-wide internationally around the world. Uh, and obviously, um, if you're DOJ, that's a particularly troubling uh, potential uh, to, for that to come out that way because they'll, they wouldn't be able to charge a lot of FTPA violations as, as well. And then if you say, take it a step further, we're going to have the bribe desk over in the UK or France or somewhere else where there's no foreign bribery law and just tell the folks back in the United States, don't worry about it. Don't think about it. We'll find you a consultant. Everything will be fine. Then there might be setting aside the willful blindness issue. There could also be absolution for the folks back in the United States because they had nothing to do with it as well. So it, it is. Uh, I think DOJ has a good point that from a policy perspective, from from an anti-foreign bribery perspective, it could be a very troubling ruling. Now it's hard to read the tea leaves. At least one of the Second Circuit judges during the oral argument seemed to go be going DOJ's way, but you never know with these things how the other two were thinking. Or if maybe he was just playing – that judge was just playing these things out to see what it sounded like and is going to actually believe something differently. So it will be very interesting to see. But the biggest – the one of the biggest issues, Tom, as you said, is it, it could really um, make it harder for DOJ to charge cases. Now, we went back and looked um, back in August of 2015 uh, when this decision first came down. We actually went back and looked at whether this decision would have affected any of – um, DOJ's cases in retrospect, and there's really only one corporate case that would have been affected, and that's the JGC case uh, involving Bonnie Island. Right. Um, JGC, JGC was the one sort of uh, entity involved in that case where was only charged on a conspiracy basis, where there would be no other separate uh, U.S. jurisdiction physical nexus or anything like territorial jurisdiction and that as well. So for the most part, DOJ, uh, historically, uh, their enforcement program would not be affected by this if you look back backwards looking. But obviously, if companies knew this and said, you know, we can just set up these foreign bribe desks, it could really cause issues going forward. So I recall that the former uh, Louisiana Congressman William Jefferson was convicted on one count of FCPA conspiracy while not being convicted uh, uh, on the underlying count of directly, would that be inapplicable because uh, he's a U.S. citizen? That's right. That's okay. right. He's a domestic concern, so he is. He could be um, found primarily liable of, of uh, an FCPA violation, and just because the jury did not find him primarily primarily liable for an FCPA violation doesn't really affect the analysis. Well, like I said, this is really a highly technical argument with a lot of policy implications and implications for the um, the scope of what the DOJ can do for, uh, going forward. Would you have, uh, without asking you to read the tea leaves, any idea of when a we might expect a decision, James? I don't. I really don't. Uh, you know, I'm sur sure the Second Circuit's very busy. <laughs> so I think it might be a little hazardous uh, to try to predict when a decision will come out. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch, and uh, for all you uh, law geeks out there, I'm sure it will be a very uh, well-written decision, as uh, I, I believe most decisions, if not all, coming out of the Second Circuit are, and it will give us a lot of uh, gist to go over in the next coming months. Yeah, this is definitely, definitely a, a case to watch. 
so James, I'd not like, like to turn to um, the OECD working group um, on uh, bribery releases issued its first ever uh, phase four reports. And uh, I think most of my listeners are uh, are familiar with the OECD, but they don't know what the phase reports are, and particularly this phase four report. So I was wondering if you could just kind of walk us through what the phase process is and how we've gotten to phase four. Sure. So uh, under the OECD, there's, there's obviously the uh, anti-bribery convention, which requires member nations to have an FCPA-like law. Uh, and you don't have to be a member of the OECD per se to be a member of the OECD Working Group on Bribery. So the Working Group on Bribery is actually larger than the OECD itself. There's about 40 members, uh, and they all agree to submit to a peer review process where uh, two peer countries do a very close and exhaustive study of another member countries, number one, laws, to make sure that um, the law itself is consistent with the OECD requirements for what the foreign bribery law should be. And two, actually looks at practical things like, are you uh, enforcing the law? Are you advertising, for lack of a better word, to the business community that there is this law? Are you doing public outreach? Are you doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing under the the um, anti-bribery convention to make sure it's effective. Uh, and it's divided into three different phases. Phase one, originally it was divided into three different phases, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one tended to be more of a tabletop exercise focused on the actual letter of the law. Phase two was much more uh, far-reaching where the reviewing states would actually go to the country being reviewed, sit down with officials, sit down with um, uh, civil society and talk about really get kind of get underneath uh, the practical aspects of uh, anti-bribery enforcement. And then phase three was very similar to the phase two in terms of really kind of looking at the practical application of um, the anti-bribery statutes. I actually had the great fortune of doing the phase two for Russia. And I can tell you that it's a very, very comprehensive process. There are questionnaires sent out ahead of time uh, that the, the, country being reviewed has to respond to. The OECD has a permanent staff on hand that's really expert in this. They they analyze things. They prepare great packages for the examining countries to use when we go over there and ask questions. It's a really very searching process. In fact, um, it's been described as one of the most rigorous, if not the most rigorous, peer review processes in the in, in all of the in, treaties out there. Uh, I think FATF is also considered very, very searching, but this is kind of considered the model, the best version of the peer review process. And in fact, it's so important that um, many countries have gotten really, really scathing reports on them and has really actually, in many cases, in several cases, uh, resulted in actual changes to the law and enforcement. For example, the most famous case is the, uh, the, the UK got blasted in these reports uh, for having a uh, bad law and bad enforcement. And that, in many people's view, helped lead to the UK Bribery Act and the SFO's aggressive enforcement of the UK Bribery Act. So my, my, it's a long, long way of saying that these um, phase reports and this peer review process is extremely important 
um, uh, to anti-bribery enforcement going forward. And if you're a practitioner and you're curious about what the law is in any of the member states, they're really encyclopedic and kind of treatises on what they are. Very fascinating. I, I highly recommend them to you, to practitioners, especially, of course, the phase two report for Russia, which was brilliant because I did that. I worked on that. <laughs> um, but but the, the OECD working group has been around for a while now. And they've actually gone through all three phases for many of the member states. For example, the United States has gone through the phase three several years ago. My partner, Chuck DeRoss, was one of the uh, folks who helped lead that up uh, on, the, on the response side of that. And so the question became, all right, we've done these phases. They've been very useful, but now they're done. And how do we continue to monitor um, countries what do we do to make sure they're still complying, uh, and, and what's the next phase? And so uh, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of debate in the OECD about what we should do for phase four. Uh, a lot of people are very concerned about what that would look like. And um, they finally agreed on a phase four monitoring process last March 2016. And these reports that came out in March of 2017 were the first two under the phase four monitoring process. They were of the United Kingdom and Finland. And by all accounts, it actually went very well. Um, uh, the, the agreed upon approach to phase four ended up being very successful. And it looks like there's going to continue to be an evolution of phases going forward uh, to make sure that countries continue to fulfill their, pro their, their um, obligations under the anti-bribery convention. James, with respect to the findings on Finland, I found those a little troubling. And the reason I did was it said that there was a, quote, discouragingly high, end quote, acquittal rate of foreign bribery cases that went to trial. And I'm a recovering trial lawyer, and I'm pretty much of the opinion that if you have if you haven't lost a case, that means you haven't been to trial. And so I don't get too fussed when a judicial system works. I may disagree with the result, but I believe that procedural protections are in place for both the prosecution and the defendant. And if you go to trial, that it's up to the trial judge, the trier of fact, be it the judge or the jury, to make those decisions. So that if you get an acquittal, I don't view that as a as a failure of your uh, anti-bribery efforts, your convention, your legislation, or indeed anything else uh, wrong. So um, really, any thoughts on, on that recommendation? Sure. The recommendation, Tom, uh, was that uh, really, I think it seemed to be, if you get underneath the recommendation, it seemed to be that um, the OECD working group thought that maybe they weren't taking these cases seriously enough, that they are complicated cases. Uh, it takes a little bit of a different skill set to investigate and present these types of cases at trial, and that maybe there was um, not enough sophistication and uh, expertise in bringing them to, to, to trial. I think that was sort of underneath what was going on there. And I can tell you, I, I've tried a lot of cases like you, Tom, uh, including two FCPA cases, and they are a little different. Um, not, not that they're completely different than all other kind of complex cases, but they have their own nuances, how to prove somebody's a foreign official, uh, how to get overseas evidence, uh, things like that. And so maybe there was a little bit of the OECD thinking that we need a little more specialization, a little more expertise in how to do these. The one that I thought was interesting, and so the, the recommendations were um, provide detailed information and training to judges, prosecutors, and investigators on the foreign bribery offense and its application. 
assign foreign bribery cases to courts or judges with specialized skills and experience, and enact clear and comprehensive legislation to protect whistleblowers. Uh, you know, I I don't know if you should really – I don't know enough about Finland's exact system to know if these are good ideas or not. But, but if you kind of look at maybe the bigger picture, it seems like they were saying this is a complicated area uh, and you need to take it a little more seriously and give a little more training and experience to folks who are both trying and hearing these cases. I guess I'm also informed by my father, who was an officer in the United States Navy, and his philosophy was once an officer, always an officer. Uh, if you're an officer, you're charged with knowing everything an officer is supposed to know. And if you don't know it, you better go learn it. And so I kind of ascribe that to people who call themselves trial lawyers, too, that, uh, you know, you're supposed to be able to know how to try a case, whether it's a, a car wreck or whether it's an FCPA or a RICO or anything in between. Um, so uh, do, looking at the... Um, recommendations, though, it does seem that they are a little bit beyond simply just trying cases uh, to uh, some of the other uh, legislation in the country. So perhaps I was overly harsh, but uh, I always just find it yeah. uh, troubling when I see uh, people who actually go to trial criticized for actually going to trial. It's a good point, Tom. And I think there's another, I think there's another aspect, and I picked up on this when I was doing the phase two of Russia. In the United States, uh, obviously, as you know, and your listeners know, have actually um, dedicated they've dedicated units at the FCPA at DOJ and SEC focused on FCPA, and it's worked very well. Um, the SEC attorneys and the DOJ attorneys have built up a, a level of expertise that's been very successful. And I think what happens is, for much of what's going on in OECD um, anti-bribery convention enforcement, they they look to the United States, given the United States track record. Um, as kind of a model, not always. Obviously, different countries have different proceedings and different um, constitutional rights, for lack of a better word, and, and different mechanisms. So you can't always look one-to-one -to, -one to the United States. But I think they do when it comes to these peer review uh, process and they're looking at enforcement records. They look to the United States as a leader on how, do, how does the United States do it. And I think they see, well, the United States has specialized prosecutors for the foreign bribery offense. So maybe that's what we should have other countries do as well. And, and, and that sense was actually, um, that was during the phase two of Russia that I participated in. Uh, a lot of people were saying that. And I, and I said, you know, let's step back from it. It has worked very well for us, um, but I don't think it's necessarily the way for every country to, to go. Um, let's give them some leeway and not be overly prescriptive. But I do think there's kind of a tendency to say the U.S. has specialized units. It works very well. So maybe that's what other countries should do as well. So now if I could turn to um, a finding or rather a report issued by Trace International, which um, found there was a significant increase in global bribery, uh, anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement. And this is something that you and I have really talked about on, on each of our podcasts together uh, how this uh, the case law or the case enforcements have been ramping up, and now we have a uh, an excellent report which quantifies this. So this seems to me to be um, really con confirming what uh, you and others uh, in uh, private practice bar have said, what the regulators have told us when they speak at conferences. Uh, Dan Kahn and uh, Kara Brockmeyer uh, have talked about this. So uh, really anything in the trace report that uh, you found new or different, or is this really just uh, confirming what you anecdotally knew? I think definitely it's confirming anecdotally what, what you and I and all the other folks you mentioned already knew, Tom. 
So just for your listeners, they, they found that um, Trace found by reviewing enforcement trends in 2016 that U.S. enforcement actions had doubled from 15 to 30 and that non-U.S. enforcement actions had more than doubled from 4 to 10 since 2015. So that obviously doesn't get to all the things out there. A lot of what enforcement agencies do is non-public, so could, the, the numbers could even be more dramatic than those. Uh, but I think that the overall thrust of the Trace report saying that um, enforcement has increased greatly in the last couple of years uh, is spot on and, and really confirms what, as you said, we already kind of knew. Well, James, as always, this has been a, a really uh, fun uh, podcast for me and uh, great for the listeners. And once again, uh, great information in the Morrison Forster report. We'll link to it uh, in the show notes and uh, look forward to uh, the April report and perhaps visiting with you uh, again on this. Thanks, Tom. I look forward to it. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate the podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about this top podcast in compliance. Also, if you have any questions, you feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.